Hey lovelies, welcome to episode number 40 of the journey of self-love through self-care. My name is Amy Mercado and I'm the owner and the creator of my brand, The Mercado Method. Today, my guest is Thomas from Sensensa. And I'm super excited because we've been trying to organize this for a really, well, it feels like forever. Um, Thomas is a relationship expert with 10 years of experience and he's helped hundreds of people recover from like toxic breakups. Um, there's a bit of information here about like Thomas has been through like a bit of a turmoil with his own experiences with his relationships. But what I'm going to do is hand it over to Thomas to introduce himself and sort of give us a bit of background on who he is, maybe some bits that he's been through and like what he's sort of created. And then we're going to sort of ask, I'm going to ask, hopefully fire a few questions out and answer a few things that are maybe on my mind and on others' minds. And if there's anything else you want to get in touch with Thomas about as well, of course, I'll put all his details in this podcast episode as well. So Thomas, do you want to sort of introduce yourself and let us know a little bit more? Yeah, of course. I guess we can bridge start with the name Sensensa. What is even the meaning of that? You know, because it's a bit of a weird name. People often ask me, what does it mean? And I think the, the beginning of it, Sen, is about being grounded. It's about the balance of Sen. And sensor is a shortening for sensation, meaning, you know, sensation, noticing your body. So it's about being grounded in the body. And I think that has been the journey. So I went through separation um, and divorce from, obviously, I was married five years ago. And it started a real curiosity that had already started before, but a real curiosity in understanding relational patterns and also understanding what was it that made some relationship works and others not what made some nurturing what made others not and I kind of compare relationship we'll talk more about this a bit to a plant so the fact is what made some you know suddenly blossom and start opening up while others do the opposite close and eventually die right what is the consistent nurturement what is the soil that's required for this to be able to actually grow and and maybe we haven't got this right in the culture that we are living in, which is why we continue to live based on a lot of misunderstandings, pursuing something that might not lead to the outcome that we want, which is probably what we're going to be talking about today as well, um, which is a lot about this fallacy of, you know, we want strong chemistry. Um, and again, there's nothing wrong with that. It feels great to feel a sexual attraction, to feel strong chemistry. But again, we'll probably talk a bit about too, what is the difference between chemistry and love? because they're two very, very different things. So I think, you know, going through that understanding attachment theory, um, working with so many different people on this, it started giving me, and also I interviewed, I spent two years interviewing the different researchers and experts around the globe. And then I wrote a book on this topic, on intimacy and what love actually is. And I think that from that place, I started understanding that there were clear relational patterns that led to dysfunction and clear relational patterns that led to, to functional and nurturing dynamics. Um, and they are all learnable. However, often what we tend to do is we learn certain relational patterns in our childhood and they are on autopilot because we're unaware of these protection mechanisms of how we learn to feel safe. So we relive them again and again in our adult dynamics, unaware of why we're recreating the same patterns. And there's even a term for it called reenactment, which is where we recreate similar dynamics in the unconscious hope that we can get a resolution. The problem is no resolution comes when we're doing it completely unaware and unconscious, right? Then actually the wound just get deeper and deeper because we get re-exposed to the same trauma that created that defense strategy in the first place. 
So to be able to break it, we have to start being able to be aware to spot it and then be able to choose different patterns. And it's also why in neurology, we call widening the gap or the window of tolerance. It means widening the gap between when we have an emotional response to the time that we react on that emotional response. Because so if we react straight away, it's an automatic response, right? That was cued in. The more we can widen that gap between what we feel and when we react, the more likely we are to be able to make new choices, new actions that lead to different outcomes. What, um, what are some patterns that people might not be aware of that are maybe a bit common? Because a lot of, some of us are quite, like, I'm quite new to like figuring out patterns and stuff. Like one of my patterns I realized recently is I'm always giving in a relationship and becoming um, the people pleaser, for example. So I recognize that's something that my mum does in her relationships and then I get quite resentful and um, can then become passive aggressive. So I'm guessing that's a bit of a pattern that I'm sort of stepping into, mm -hmm. but like what sort of patterns could people be maybe looking out for? That's a, that's a great question. And I think attachment theory has given us a pretty good model. And again, just remember, because people love going around labeling each other and themselves and saying, I'm this attachment styles are not something that's fixed. First of all, they also don't define who we are, or our personality. They are like a map, imagine Google Maps. It makes it easier to navigate and understand where to go. That's basically where they're useful, but they are not who you are. They also do change, both depending on our circumstance, our resources, who we are with, the attachment styles of the other person. Um, so again, it's just really important to say this because people tend to go in and tell their partner and say, you are anxious attachment, or you're this, and then use it as a tool to blame each other, which was the opposite of what it actually is meant for. So to, to describe some of the typical patterns is we, can, we have four um, generic overall attachment styles, which basically are survival mechanisms that we learn as children how to feel safe. The first one is called secure attachment, which is pretty simple. That's people that have been quite lucky where their parents, majority of the time, were quite good at attuning to what they needed. They tended to respond to their needs really well. Their parents were really good at repairing. They were really good at, at being present. They gave you a lot of acceptance. And if you've been one of the people who've been lucky to be on the receiving end of this, the stability, the consistency, you might have secure attachment, which means that the simplest way to describe it is I'm here, I'm open to connection, but I'm also fine if you don't want to connect. I'm not going to chase you. Yeah, that's the easiest way to, to imagine somebody who is securely attached. Yeah, sense sensor, they're grounded in their sensation. So they're not going to chase you. They're not afraid of losing you. They don't feel fearful having their own time and you not being around. That's fine. But they're also very open to connecting and being vulnerable. Right. Then we have um, avoidant attachment, which is one of the other typical patterns. This is typically a child that haven't had responsive parents. It's a child that probably was raised under the old saying of just let the child cry out to give an example, right? And they basically learned that when they were in distress, nobody would come, nobody would respond. So they learned to self-soothe. They learned to only depend on themselves. So they tend to be quite independent. There are people who normally will talk about how they value independence very much, et cetera. Um, they tend to prefer to deal with stress on their own. They tend to have a bit of fear of intimacy and getting too close because they don't really trust that their partner will respond, which makes sense because you didn't have. And again, this is why we have to see it in context. Instead of blaming, we can now start understanding this was actually a child 
who didn't have parents who responded to them. So it's a natural defense mechanism to learn, okay, I can only trust myself to care for myself. And within that space, of course, it's not safe to be intimate because intimacy requires you to let your guard down and actually trust another person to show up for you. That is a key part of intimacy, right? And for somebody with avoidant attachment, that's quite scary. So they also tend to, you know, want a lot of alone time to, to often they will be ghosting. That's a typical thing that avoidant people often do. They ghost people um, when they feel distress. And uh, yeah, they just find it quite hard to actually be real intimate in relationship and show themselves. They tend to prefer a more superficial level. They tend to value, you know, for example, career and being able to achieve things and things like that, right? So, and again, so that's a kind of description of that. Then there's, of course, anxious attachment, um, which again was somebody who had quite inconsistency, meaning sometimes maybe the parents were there, then they suddenly were not there. Maybe one parent suddenly left and abandoned them, right? And that creating anxiety, a fear of being abandoned. So the anxious attachment which on the more extreme spectrum, some people refer to as codependent. I don't like that term too much, but anxious attachment tend to be very worried when they seem to rush into relationship because they want a really quick commitment because, well, they're anxious that this person will leave them or not like them. So they want things to go really quick. They tend to rush into relationship, rush into commitment because that gives them a felt sense of safety. They tend to get anxious when the other person is away or doesn't respond very quickly. So they tend to, and again, I don't like this term. They tend to what we call be more clingy, needy behavior. As I said, I don't like this term because I think it's shaming and it doesn't allow for a healing process to take place. I think instead we need to look at why they do it. They do it because they had abandonment and they learned I'm not safe. This person can suddenly disappear out of my life, right? So they tend to be open to intimacy, but then be very afraid of losing it. And then they cling on to it, they try and control, they use blame and often other passive aggression, different mechanism to try and control, which is just a defense mechanism to try and feel safe, right? Um, but the interesting part is when we call it anxious attachment, we tend to think that avoidant people are very confident because on the outside, they look very confident. Research has shown us that avoidant people feel equal, sometimes even higher level of internal stress and anxiety to people with anxious attachment. So these are actually both anxious attachment styles, if that makes sense. And they more describe the behavior of how we respond to that internal anxiety of relating. One pulls away because they only trust themselves, which is the avoidant. The other one do the opposite. They cling more to try and hold on and control, right? So they're just opposite way they learn to deal with that distress, yeah? And essentially they both want the same, which is responsiveness, and knowing that somebody will care and will be there for them when they need it. That's essentially what we all want as human beings. That's a very core need that stays with us from we are small independent child, a tiny kid, till the day we go into a grave. It doesn't change. And we tend to think as we grow up, this need goes away. It doesn't. We're inherent and social beings. We do need other people and we can't do life alone. Even the most independent person have to acknowledge that you're not doing everything alone. You go to the supermarket, you depend on people to get you food. You depend on somebody to make sure there's electricity and heat, right? Even the most independent of person is actually not independent. They are dependent on a social structure. We cannot do life alone. And emotionally, we are no different. Even though we often want to, because it can be scary to relate, 
We can't do life emotionally alone. We do need other people. And the last attachment patterns is what's called disorganized, which is essentially where a mixture between the avoidant and anxious behavioral strategies, they tend to very quickly want to go into relationship and cling on and seek intensity. As soon as they get that intimacy, then they push away and they pull away because they're like, oh, fuck, I'm going to be abandoned or whatever. And then they push the other person away, right? And that is disorganized, disorganized, meaning that it's a mixture between the two. And there's a higher, I'm not saying this applies to everyone, but research has shown there's a higher correlation with, with trauma in this attachment style than with the other attachment styles. And that's not to say there's something wrong with people that are disorganized at all. This is not meant to shame people. It's meant to create compassion and understanding and finding ways that we can heal and move out of these behavioral patterns. So that's a lot of rambling, but that gives you like an overview of the, the common patterns. I've got some questions, if that's okay. So I'm like scribbling down. So like, for instance, growing up, like there's a lot of things that resonated with me when you were saying that. And to be honest, I would probably say I'm more disorganized. I fall into that kind of category. Um, but growing up, like when my brother came along, I guess I'd had all the attention on me to an extent. Mm. And then he was quite a needy child and he was quite a sickly child. Mm. And it was almost like I was used to having that and then to have that taken away, could that form like almost a bit of an, an abandonment response? Yeah. Um, and then I, it led me, well, I believe, um, I'm guessing it sort of can lead to addictive behavior patterns possibly. Like I grew up with bulimia. Mm. So it was almost like, I would use food, I think, to control, like trying to control my external um, and then patterning with that. Is, is that stuff that sort of comes up with, with things like this? So, of course, like you would need much more individual history to be able to say what it is, because there's not one one cause of bulimia. But it's certainly true that there is correlation, again, with early experiences of trauma. And we have to understand, because even let's just define what trauma actually means, because, again, people say this all the time. I had trauma, I had trauma. What does it actually mean? I think that's quite important to even understand what it is we're talking about. So when I'm talking about trauma, I don't talk about adverse experience that are uncomfortable or not nice. So trauma is much more likely to occur in children because they don't have the ability to regulate their own emotions yet, right? That part of the brain doesn't only start developing around when a child is eight years old and it finished developing in our mid-20s, prefrontal cortex. So that means we can't actually regulate and self-soothe. Self-regulation is not possible before the age of eight, hardly, and then it slowly start developing, right? And trauma is an, an overwhelm, an emotional overwhelm of the nervous system. And there, when we have look at the different responses that we have to distress, there's obviously there's fight, right? There's fighting back, there's flight, which is getting away. And there's a freeze response. The freeze response is the one that tends to cause trauma because it's a felt sense of helplessness, right? And a child is much more likely to go into a freeze response and be overwhelmed, both because they can't self-regulate and because they are quite helpless, right? They are in a state where they're fully dependent on the caregiver. And that means it's much more likely that an event happening to a child, even like you said, a sibling coming along and their attention being taken away can feel overwhelming for that nervous system. Meaning that what might be traumatizing at four-year-old would not be traumatizing at 30, right? The same experience. So we can't just look at experiences we tend to say, oh, if this happened, then it's a traumatic event. If this happened, that's not traumatic. 
but you can't do that because traumatic event is individual and also depending on where you are in your developmental stages and your age, right? And it's dependent on whether your nervous system gets overwhelmed. If you get overwhelmed and get into freeze response, it tends to become a trauma if it's not processed relatively quickly. And if you don't have the adequate support after the event has just occurred. Um, and that's a whole other podcast of how to then obviously deal with trauma, which we can do another time. Um, yeah. Um, and another thing that was like a quite a big part of life was my parents' divorce. And this came up for me the other day. Like I haven't really sort of delved into how that felt having a parent, even though as a child, we knew it needed to happen because it was an unhappy home. And we knew we was at that awareness of a certain age, mm. um, maybe not so much for my brother, but having uh, a parent, even though he wasn't really present there, having them then leave that, how does that, can that affect attachment styles as well at all? Yes, I think you just described the, the classical and typical example of why people might develop anxious attachment behavior. I prefer to call them actually behaviors and styles because style sounds more like it's what you are. Behavior seems more like something you can change, right? So actually, I think I'll call them behaviors going forward in this podcast because it feels better to use that word. So yes, it explains the anxious attachment behaviors because, you know, like you said yourself, you maybe I have some, you said codependence behavior, blah, and that makes a lot of sense. And this is where it's beautiful to understand because it brings compassion, right? Instead of being harsh and say, oh, I shouldn't do that. There's a good reason that these are your default behaviors. Because you had, you just described several incidents. When he came in, suddenly attention was taken away. Then it's a split family. These are all instances that are overwhelming for a child because a child feels helpless and out of control, right? A child is to some extent out of control when this happened. You don't have a say. So that told you that these things, your most core dependent attachment people could suddenly be taken away, right? The care, the attention could suddenly be taken away. And that suddenly creates a lot of understanding for why there might be these behaviors where we start feeling anxious, where we want to rush, where we want to make sure that this person doesn't leave, right? That makes it a very natural response. It doesn't mean that's the one you have to continue to live, but it creates a lot of understanding, I think, and compassion for why you are having that response. And another, another thing that was, I guess, quite a big piece of history for us was um, losing like our Nana, and my mum was so close to her. She, I think she wasn't emotionally available for us when, when this was going on for about a period of four years, plus the toll it took afterwards. And then having a father that wasn't around or emotionally available, mm -hmm. I became, and I became, I guess, I became like almost like the elder in the house and looked after my brother and stepping into that, um, needing to do everything for my own and, and also being a caregiver at the same time. So I feel like it's starting to make sense now why certain things are starting to play out in my adulthood. Um, but I guess a question would be as well, like what, so you said we can't, it's difficult for a child to regulate up until the age of eight. Like, is that something a secure attachment style parent should be teaching or providing for a child? And how would they maybe, what would that maybe look like? Yes. So I, I think that's a great question. So what does secure attachment actually look like? And I think let's imagine a baby because that can explain this quite well. So when a baby comes out, you know, first of all, normally it comes out it normally be held, right? That's one of the first things. So physical touch is also a huge part of attachment and why we learn 
often to feel safe through touch. Of course, some people don't if they have had violation, I understand, but we're talking about secure attachment, right? We're talking about if we got it right, then there would have been comforting touch, which is why people like that tend to feel very soothed through touch because that their nervous system and the biggest organ is actually our skin learned straight away that touch was associated with safety. And that means touch can now always bring them back to a place of feeling safe, right? If they had that. While of course, with people who've been violated, it can often be something that leads to disassociation, the opposite, because it feels unsafe. And they need to learn to restore a sense of felt safety and touch. So that would be touch. Then there would be what does happen. The child would cry, right? The baby will start crying. So what does a mother do? Because this explains what is safety both in a child, but also actually in an adult relationship, it's the same. What does a mother do? The mother, if she's secure and you know, able to give that, she will attune. She would be like, what does my child need now, right? Does my child need food? Is it cold? Does it need sleep? It'll try and figure that out, right? And it might not get it right, but it'll keep trying to attune and then figure it out, right? And then it will give that to the child. When you do that consistently, over time, the child learn I'm safe. Yeah, when I have a need, whether hunger, sleep, whatever, I'm hot, cold, whatever it is, primarily this is sensation-based, which is why often in recovery with attachment, we can do some talk therapy, but we also need to work with the body, right? Because hunger, hot, cold, sleep, tired, these are all sensations, right? To how we first learn to see, is a caregiver responsive to us? Do they respond to these very core survival needs? And if they do, we learn that we are safe. We start to trust the world. And actually, what we found is that people become more independent. There used to be this idea that, oh, no, we shouldn't respond to them because if we leave them to cry it out, they will learn to be dependent. Research has shown us now that the opposite are true. If we respond and they learn to feel secure, they're more likely to go explore the world. They're more likely to take risks. They're more likely to achieve their potential. Yeah. And actually, the opposite is true with a child who doesn't feel safe. So, the, and the same then applies to adult. What do we do when we're relating as adult? How are we able to try and attune and we might not get it right? That's fine. Because part of secure attachment and recreating that also in adulthood, because this is the same child and adult, is the repair process. You know, we know now from research that even uh, adults who raise securely attached children get it wrong 70% of the time. That means they only get it right 30% of the time. So you don't have to be a perfect parent. But what do they do that's different? What securely attached parents do different is when they get it wrong, they repair. They quickly come back and they repair what went wrong. Yeah, they sit with the child. They acknowledge the child experience and say, okay, I understand this was distressing for you. And here's what, let's see how we can do it differently next time. Yeah, which create a sense of secure a sense of being seen and heard for the child that creates secure attachment. While the other parents, they don't, they don't come back and repair. So it makes the child learn again, I'm not safe. Yeah, they don't get it and they are not even trying to get it. And if they don't get it, there's no repair. I'm on my own in this, yeah? I, so this is the same in adulthood, even in an adult relationship. How quickly are you able to regulate and then come back and repair? And we know now that if the repair happened within 30 minutes, it's not stored in long-term memory. If you work, wait more than 30 minutes, that conflict gets stored in long-term memory, which is why it's quite important to understand, are we able to go away, regulate, and then come back quickly to repair with the other person and saying, okay, I got really triggered because X, Y, and Z, maybe I shouldn't have yelled. I take responsibility. I apologize. 
here is how I felt and here's what I needed from you in that moment yeah I guess it's hard as well like if the baby like we're not at the age where we can communicate my brother always said it's so much easier when they start talking so they can sort of tell you but if it's a case where someone's constantly being fed and they're not actually hungry can that then cause like patterns in adult behavior where we might overeat or sort of have yes because yes of course because what you're describing is again somebody who's not attuning and is not responsive right so this is why this is a core for understanding all things that deviate from a more secure attachment or feeling secure and safe is somebody who's not attuning so somebody overfeeding you they're not attuning to you right they're not paying attention they're not responding to what's being communicated by that child again they are forcing their reality onto the child which is why again a child learned i don't have the right to my needs i don't have the right to my boundaries because even overfeeding is almost a violation right of I don't want this anymore. And, and we do it all the time, unconscious, even people with the best intention and kind, look at what we do to kids. We pick them up, we tickle them, even when we don't want them, we pick them up, we cuddle and kiss them. I'm not talking about a baby, I'm talking about a, you know an old, and we don't even ask them. Imagine a world where we stopped to ask for consent and ask a child, do you want the hug right now? This is what I do with my daughter. She's six, I've done it since she was three years old and had language. And she learned that she could say no. And imagine the safety that brings to her and the learned sense of boundaries. And even, you know, a few months ago when I went to give her a hug and forgot to ask, she put up her finger and she said, Daddy, you didn't ask if you can hug me. And I said, oh, you're right. I said, can I hug you? She said, not right now, but maybe later. Yeah, imagine if we told our kids that, the felt sense of safety they would have in the world, the right they learned to feel I have the right to my boundaries, right? And imagine how we might relate differently as adults if we had this experience. Just blow my mind a little bit there. Um, it's another thing as well, like we're all got this ball, we, this paradigm of, I guess if parents are working at certain hours and schedules and we have to eat at this time and it's almost like, you know, we've been made to feel like that might be the parent's schedule to feed a child because that's their their slot or that's when they're going out and we're sort of not attuning to so that's something I'm working with really heavily now is eating intuitively like am I physically hungry or am I is that my psychological clock going oh it's 12 o'clock that's lunchtime this is this and how does that sort of play out as well with like parenting do you feel so you mean in specifically to hunger or what I, I guess the hunger and bedtime and like we're sort of certain schedules well I think it's about anything in life is what is it that we prioritize yeah because everything has to we we obviously choose what we do and how we act based on what are our priorities and values right what do we prioritize so in parenting what should our prioritize be yeah we absolutely have to feed them that's true they do have to sleep i say prioritize connection because and i know some people say oh but i don't have time you do connection doesn't take long connection is stopping when you get home with your child it could be just 10 15 minutes and give your child your full attention put away the phones the computers everything else you're doing give them your attention do something they enjoy together yeah then you establish connection first of all that allows you your child to feel safe and secure and feel seen, right, heard, etc. important, that they're loved, that they're valued, that they're worthy. You teach them all this in that 15 minutes a day, yeah? And everything else you do afterwards, I promise you, becomes so much easier. 
Feeding them will have less conflict. Getting them to bed will have less conflict because when we are connected, we can influence another. When we feel disconnected, they will not want to listen. Yeah, that's when we arise more conflict. And mm -hmm. we also know that in teenage years, a child who feel connected to the parent because the parent have done this is much less influenced by their peers are much less likely to get into trouble with drugs, with all sorts of other things than children who have this consistently. Yeah. So if we want to have an impact and influence our children, start with connection, prioritize connection before all the other stuff. Mm -hmm. Make sure you set 15 minutes aside. And I promise you, you will save an hour a day on conflicts, on fighting, on issues through doing this very simple thing. And you raise kids that grow up to feel safe, feel worthy, all this stuff you talk about, self-love, etc. Do you know what's interesting is I feel like I've only just started to connect to myself and a lot of people that have been on this journey with me of uh, the last couple of years as well is that's why I keep saying like are you connecting to our own bodies and I'm, I'm guessing a lot of people are so dissociated or disconnected from what our own needs are that we we've not been educated or we don't know that a child would need that because that's where some patterns are sort of forming to sort of but it's like checking in with myself am I like I said yesterday like when we were talking earlier like I did my yoga and I was really in my body and I was like oh am I hungry oh I think I feel hungry so it's like I'm I'm re I feel like I'm reparenting myself at the moment and I can only imagine what it might be like for some people that we've we've been so busy in this world that it's it's coming back home to ourselves to go what are my basic needs and then do I have enough to then make sure I can give to another person as well. Yes. And I think that's so true. And it's a huge part of what I work with clients on too, because you're right. A lot of people are not even aware of their own needs. Right. And also if we look at relating in a relationship, how can we even create an authentic, vulnerable way of relating with another human being when we don't even know our own needs that will relating will eventually lead to resentment, to anger, to lots of other things because we're not able, you know, we are, it's unable to express, right? So that's one point of, of authentic relating, which is a whole podcast in itself, is being aware. So the self-awareness of own needs, right? And own boundaries. Yes, the self-awareness. That's the first part as well. Actually, one of the key skills, the two key skills they found to successful relationship, self-awareness and self-regulation. Mm -hmm. If people have these two skills, they tend to deal quite well and navigate quite well within relationships. So, you know, to be able to even relate authentically with another or even get our needs met, we can't get them met. If we don't know them, right? It's impossible. If we don't even know them, how do we expect somebody else to magically know them? That's an unrealistic expectation. So it starts with that self-awareness, right? The second component is then to have self-acceptance and compassion, because we also go around with a lot of shame around our own needs and boundaries, right? Do I even have the right? to say no. If, you know, so many women would tell me I'm scared of flirting because what if I change my mind and don't want sex? I said, what if you were allowed to flirt? What if you were allowed to kiss? What if you were allowed to get physical and you could stop at any point and change your mind? Because actually you can, that is your right. And when you learn to feel safe in that, relating becomes so much more beautiful, right? Because now we can start one it has the self-acceptance of what are my needs and also acceptance of these are my boundaries and I have the right to express them and to have them. And having the awareness of what you need, your boundaries, having self-acceptance so you can express them. 
and had the courage, which is obviously built through having safe exposure of doing that, which is why, you know, therapy is good. What I do with the clients is helping them start feeling safe, expressing boundaries, expressing their needs. And when you can do that, then you can relate in a whole nother way mm-hmm. where you're able to get your needs met, express them without blaming the other person because you don't come from resentment of not having them met. You can just say, here's what I'm feeling. Here's what I need, Right. And you can express as well when you have disappointment, when they're not met, and that create a beautiful place for connection, even when there's disappointment, because we can't always meet our partner's needs. But when we can be together in the disappointment, it become connecting instead of something that create distance, right? I feel like it's interesting because I feel like I'm learning to express my needs or how I feel, but then it's also allowing that person space and time to integrate what's been said because mm-hmm. classically like I'm I talk quite a lot and I'm not used to someone taking space for example so if they don't speak mm-hmm. afterwards I think oh I've upset them and then I try and fill that space where they're just maybe taking time or they might need two days they might need to, it's almost like learning that we, we we're entitled to take space as well from from situations or from expression mm-hmm. Yes. And there's two interesting points I have on this. The first is also with our boundaries, it's okay not to know and take space. It's okay to just notice something doesn't sense right and say, actually, I'm going to get back to you on that. I can't give you an answer. Often we get pulled into something because we feel we have to respond right now. Yeah. It's totally okay to say, I don't know right now. I'll get back to you later. Yeah. And give ourselves the space to then fill in, especially in the beginning when we're not in tune, we probably don't know right away. So actually this should be used really often. Just telling people, do you want to go out tonight? Just say, I don't know right now. I'll fill into it and get back to you later. Can you do this work task for me? I don't know right now. I need to just fill into it. Right. Again, just keep practicing this of saying, I don't know right now and take your time. The second part is what you say about filling the gap. That's a thing that, especially for people with anxious attachment, tend to come up a lot in dating. When they go out and date, they feel really uncomfortable with silence and they want to feel it all the time because otherwise they feel anxious, right? Does the other person not like me? Are they going to leave me? And there's a beautiful practice in practicing being with that silence that start, you know, and, and regulating while we're doing that. And there's lots of techniques I could give for that. And there's a real beauty. And I had to go through that transformation myself, actually of learning to feel safe. And now I even enjoy it. I used to hate it when it would happen on a date, hate it, it would create so much anxiety. Now I even feel joy in it. And I would, might even just express that. I said, isn't it nice we can just sit here in silence and don't have to talk? Because talking all the time can you know, take a lot of energy and be quite tiring. Would you let them know that you was like, sometimes like, I was in the car with my friend the other day and I got triggered, for example, and she, I, she's, someone that would talk as well and fill that space and she's talking because she could now she felt nervous I could feel she felt nervous because I wasn't able and I, was like, I just need a couple of minutes just to regulate myself and just to breathe and yes. I just, just to let her know so it wasn't triggering her into a response as well so I could take space in my car in a bubble with with someone in there is that something you would let someone know like cause I, I feel yes, like that's expressing your need right so if you come back you have a need which is for having some space to regulate right because it might be a bit overwhelming so that's beautiful and again often with anxious attachment we learn to caretake others because we learn that we are safe 
only when the other's okay. That's part of that whole pattern, right? Which is why we constantly take responsibility for other people's emotions. We tend to be hypervigilant of how other people are feeling because we learn when we can manage other people's emotions, we will be safe. Mm. Yeah. But it's an illusion because it makes us unsafe because it makes us negate our own needs and boundaries, right? But it worked as a child, it did, because by soothing the parent or giving them what they want, we we've, were more safe. But the same strategy doesn't work as an adult. And this is where they become harmful to adult dynamics, even if they actually were good for you as a child, right? They, because as a child, you can't move away. You have to keep this person looking out for you or you actually will die, right? So therefore those patterns are so, and we feel the same. It can almost feel like we are dying if this person doesn't feel okay, right? However, as adults, we don't need those patterns anymore because if that pattern person leave, you're actually not going to die. It feels like it emotionally because it's an old response getting triggered, but we actually are not. So unlike the child who actually would potentially die if there was nobody to look out for them, the adult won't. So we can now choose different behavioral patterns and then learn to be present with that anxiety. And over time, the anxiety change. And we learn that we are not responsible. They are responsible for their emotional reaction. Yeah. And that doesn't mean we're not kind because there's a confusion around the word kindness, which often we tend to think is looking out for other. Kindness actually starts with self. Am I being kind to me? Am I listening to my own needs? Am I respecting my own boundaries? If I'm not, I'm not being kind. I'm caretaking, but I'm not being kind because it's not kind to me. I'm neglecting this organism. Yeah. And that's not kind in any way or form. I think so actually, I, I read a meme the other day. It was like, there's a difference between being nice and being kind. Yes. And that really summed it up for me. And I was like, oh, I've been being nice and making sure everyone yes. else is okay, but I'm not being kind to myself. Yes. And another thing, like growing up, I was always told that I was stubborn. So if something happened, I would mm. not want to talk to that person. And now I recognize that that was my probable way of trying to cope with something to take space. Yes. And then I would build this big void because that person would be like, you know, you're so stubborn, you're not communicating. And so again, it would plant all this shame around certain yes. things. So I feel like that's why I flipped to an extent as an adult being like, oh, I don't want someone to feel that I'm, I'm pushing them away. So I could see where I probably was going into that clingy, like anxious to avoid it, like batting between the two, because naturally knowing that I need space but then having this guilt from growing up saying you're a stubborn person. So it's like certain words that we're using, like to yeah. say to a, a child or even as a young adult like, that can program us to sort of feel our behavior is unacceptable. Yeah. And that's beautiful that you mentioned this. Thank you. And because what we know now, well, for research is shame makes us unable to change and, and even self-blame while actually self-compassion and compassion allow change to take place, which is why often what happened, and I know this for myself, you know, when I had fear strategies, I would get really harsh on myself and I would start saying, I want this to go away. I'm going to make it go away. The interesting thing is it did the opposite. So to actually create change, the first step is actually to meet our defense strategies with compassion and actually honor them. And when I started feeling, when I started feeling a change was when I did the opposite. So when I felt my fear, instead of getting irritated with the fear and said, go away, I don't want you, blah, blah, blah. I would say, thank you. Thank you for showing up because I know you're here to keep me safe. 
I know you want me to push this person away so I can be safe. And I really appreciate you're here to protect me. However, I don't need you right now in this moment because actually I am safe, but I really appreciate that you're here. Yeah, so there's an honoring that these mechanisms are there for a good reason. And like anything else, they want to be heard and acknowledged. A child wants to be heard and that child that developed those strategies, we can't change that by keep shaming it and saying, go away, you're wrong. That's not acknowledging what is actually not wrong. That child did the right thing, yeah, to care for self. So there's a compassion and looking at these strategies that maybe we even want to change and saying, thank you for being here. I don't need you right now in this moment, but I do appreciate that you make me aware that you need safety right now. Yeah. And maybe what are other strategies that I can give you safety right now? That's not pushing this person away. And that's a gap where we charge, where we acknowledge what we're feeling, but we start choosing new behavioral patterns. Yeah. So I acknowledge, I feel fearful. The action I want to do, which is my automatic response is to push the other person away. I acknowledge how I feel, which is fearful, but let me choose a different response. Yeah, I, I can feel I want to push the other person, but that's not what I'm going to do. I'm going to accept my fear and use different strategies to soothe that fear. That could be giving myself a hug. That could be imagine myself being this little child and, and seeing what that child needs and give that. That could be whatever it is that you need. Yeah. What is it you need to soothe that fear? And then I do that. And after that, I can then choose a different behavior. Yeah. And it might be I don't want this person in my life, but at least now I can make a choice that wasn't based on an automatic response of a little child stuck in a fear response. Yeah, I can make a much more informed response on where I want to go with this dynamic. That's such an interesting point because that's something that's come up for me in the past where I've pushed some away and that'll be a pattern and they'll start to leave and I'll pull them back because that's that fear of abandonment. So it becomes this push-pull dynamic. But how or i guess it's a million dollar question like how do you know when someone potentially is like it's not your nervous system necessarily reacting but that's your actual adult self going this person maybe isn't serving me or this isn't um a relationship that maybe i want and touching on like what you said earlier like we want to talk about like the difference between love and chemistry so so this is a beautiful question and it comes back to self-awareness because if we don't have awareness of what I call it the set point. And again, I work with clients a lot on this. I know what my natural set point of anxiety is. So I do journaling literally every day. So I have a great idea of how anxious I tend to be in general, right? Which means I know what's mine. And then I also know what is the impact of the other. But if you don't know your set point, you don't know, is it the other? Is it me? If you don't know your own triggers, what they are, you don't know, is it the other that's toxic to me? Or is it me just playing out, right? Through doing this due diligence that I've obviously done for years and having the self-awareness of what are my specific triggers, right? I know that if any of these happen, it's me who's being triggered, right? Right now I'm being triggered and I can't see things objectively, right? Until I've soothed them down. I also know my natural set point of anxiety. So how anxious do I normally feel around people, right? I know that through my journaling, my reflection of being in different settings. I know if I'm a group of 
of a hundred people, a, a big crowd, I feel slightly more anxious than if I'm in a small intimate crowd. That's just my nervous system. So that's mine to own that. But again, I only know that through self-awareness, right? Otherwise I could think it was the other person at this event who was really horrible, but I know that now. So through knowing that, I know this is my set point. And if I consistently is much more stressed when I'm with this person, then what is my set point? That's an indicator for me that this person is not very good for me. Yeah. Or if the other, if it's the same, it doesn't mean there can be instances where you get triggered. As I said, this is where you need to know your trigger because even a healthy person can trigger you, right? <laughs> Unaware, unconsciously, etc. That doesn't mean they're toxic. So it's about seeing, am I consistently when with this person feeling more stress, feeling unsafe in my body than I am when I'm on my own, right? And this is where the awareness also, because some people who have high bodily trauma we feel somatically unsafe with anyone, right? Even with a safe person. So this is where self-awareness come in of knowing, is this me or is this the other person? What is my normal set point? How do I normally feel in different circumstances? And is dealing with this person making me feel more anxious, the same or less? Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. You've got some example, maybe um, some set point triggers. Well, of course, trigger depends specifically on, on you. So if you had an alcoholic dad who would, who would leave the room and smack the door really loudly when he got drunk, then hearing a loud door, you know, be slammed might be a trigger for you. So it's very individual because it's depending on what happened to you when you were experiencing a high state of distress, right? And those became your triggers. It could be somebody saying specific words to you. It could be somebody who shamed you over specific things around your weight, right? So it's very specific to what your experience was that caused you a lot of distress, a lot of shame or a fight or flight response, right? So those things will obviously often tend to also be triggered today. For me, I know that it's if somebody doesn't acknowledge my point of view, that can be really triggering because that's what I experienced. I felt a lot not being heard and acknowledged. So I know if that happens, it doesn't necessarily mean straight away the person is toxic. It could also just be that I'm triggered. I don't mind people having different opinions, but I get really triggered if they don't acknowledge my point of view, right? Um, but instead of you know snapping, I can then slow down and say, okay, let me just soothe this. And once I'm soothed, then let me see how do I feel, right? And if this is a continuous pattern, if this person continue, even after I express that I have this need, that they continue to not being able to acknowledge my, my point of view, then they might not be a good person for me to relate to, right? But what I'm saying is at least slow down, notice what you need, communicate that need and see if they're responsive. Another way to see whether it's toxic or not is boundaries, yeah? One of the easiest ways to notice whether somebody is toxic for you or not is do they respect and encourage your boundaries? People that are toxic for you tend to make you feel wrong about your boundaries, tend to try and keep pushing past your boundaries even after you set them or totally just ignore them altogether. So I always say a great way when you start relating to new people and again, this requires you aware of your boundaries and can sense them, right? Which is a work in itself. I do a lot of this with clients is to set boundaries early on and notice how does this person respond? If they respect your boundaries, you know, maybe they called you too late and you say, actually, I don't want phone calls after 10 o'clock in the evening because that's my 
downtime, right? And they might say, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know that, right? And then they stop doing it. That's somebody respecting your boundaries. That's a healthy sign. That's a really healthy. They might even encourage you and say, thank you for telling me. I wasn't aware. Now I know. That's encouraging your boundary, which is a really healthy sign, right? This is a sign of healthy relating, nurturing relating. It's setting the right soil for the plant to grow and blossom. And the opposite is also true. Somebody who starts to shame you, try and make you feel bad about that and saying, what's that? You sleep at 10 o'clock, trying to make you feel wrong, trying to push against, trying to overstep. It's a sign of somebody who doesn't respect boundaries. And that's not the right soil to start planting flowers in. What's, um, it's interesting, what's your opinion of, so obviously we said about boundaries and touch and like giving a cuddle. I'm very mindful now, like if I want to cuddle, I'm like, can I, I ask, can I have a cuddle? And mm-hmm. I respect if that person like says yes or no. But if it's a need in a relationship that you've communicated that maybe you wanted and it, like for me, it regulate. I know it helps me regulate, um, but you've communicated that and then that person, it still doesn't seem like it's valid to them. Mm-hmm. I can still feel like I can still get triggered that I'm not receiving what I need. Is that then down to me to like soothe myself in that experience? I think there's two elements. It's a great question. So one is I would continue to then communicate that. And now you're talking about disappointment. So you're also probably dealing with some disappointment that needs to be communicated too. If you're alone with that, it will create resentment and distance, right? It creates a feeling of being alone again, which is relating is opposite. It's about feeling we're a team, we're together on this, we support each other, right? So that has to be communicated if you want to relate in an authentic way, which again needs to be done without throwing blame back. Because when we use blame, which often we do when we've been hiding our needs, it often comes out in blame. It will pretty much always, unless people are really, really aware and regulated, trigger a defensive response in them, right? Because blame is sent for the body and the, bra- and the brain as an attack, right? Which means now my options are fight or flight. I can pull away from you or I can attack you back, right? So we need to communicate this without blame. And we use that by staying with I, with your experience. So that could be I feel a lot of disappointment, right? I'm focusing on what I'm feeling. I'm not talking about you. What I really need is touch and I'm not getting that. And that makes me feel really frustrated. And that, you know, that, that whatever it is, that does not care for what I really need in this dynamic. And I really need to have whatever it is that you need right now. Can you hear how it's all focused on me? It's how I'm feeling what I need. None of it is about you or what you have done wrong. And therefore, it doesn't elicit necessarily that same defensive response, right? And so that's the first part. That's your part to own that. You need to communicate what you're feeling and what you need. That's your responsibility to work on that. However, there's also points where we have to say, what are deal breakers for me in a relationship? What are core needs that I have to have met for me to want to be in relationship? For me, I'm like, you touch is my love language. So I know if somebody doesn't like touch or is adverse to touch, I cannot have an intimate romantic relationship with them. I can be friends with them, but I will not have a romantic relationship, right? So this is really important too. This is about how do I make good partner choices, right? By knowing my own needs really clearly and understanding the other person. So instead of rushing, I take time. So I slow down the dating process. So instead of just being based on a chemical rush, I have time to understand the different preferences, behavioral patterns, goals of myself, the consistency in this, and see if this is actually 
a good match because the chemicals will subside after six months to two years. As we all know, the honeymoon phase goes, the dopamine, the oxytocin come down. And what matters then are these things, right? Which is why it's important to slow down in that dating process to see, is it actually a good fit, right? Instead of rushing, slow down. Do you feel, because I never used to really be a, I feel like maybe I was a touchy person and then I think some things like past relationships where I've been hurt and I almost shut down. So I've had past partners say to me like, one minute I'm too emotional and then I've been told um, I'm too cold. So it's for me now, I do appreciate that one of my love languages is touch, but that's been something that was really opened up to me like a few years ago. And I'm like, oh, I do really love that. So we can develop, I'm guessing we can develop these qualities as well, like from connect, because if we want to, so if you express your need and say like, I, you know, I, I feel disappointed or da da da, and then that person, it shouldn't be because they want to do it for you. It should be because they want to do it because they want to, if that makes sense, like for that person to learn. Absolutely. And yeah, that brings a whole other set of relational things up what you're saying now. But I think we also have to be mindful. So you're right, yes. And we also have to be mindful for with that there's different reasons why people don't like touch. It could also be trauma. So I hated touch for the majority of my adult life. Now I love it. But that was through doing somatic trauma therapy that I started rediscovering the joy. And if you had touch that were violating, your body might have learned to feel adverse, to feel some people even get sick from touch, right? For me, it created an uncomfortable, irritating sensation. And through my body learning to feel safe with touch again, my nervous system started responding completely different to touch. And I started enjoying it and loving it. And now I love it. But it's also being mindful that for some people, they might not like touch because they actually have somatic and bodily trauma that is stored in the body, right? And therefore, and my ex-wife used to tell me, why don't you like when I touch you on the front? And I said, oh, it's so irritating, just stop it. And I was unaware of why I had this response, right? And it was obviously an unconscious response for the body to try and keep me safe, to say, don't let anybody touch you because touch is not safe, yeah? And my body had to learn, which again is things I work with clients on, how can we make touch feel safe again? What does a body need? And for me, it was so simple as doing something somatic where somebody held their hand on my body and they would slowly press into my stomach. And when I tense my stomach, which is a defense response, they would allow me to push their hand out, right? And as I relaxed, they would slowly press in. When I tense, they would let me push them out. And slowly my body learned that my body was in control, which obviously was what it had learned as a child. It was not, right? It had learned to constantly be on defense and be tense, which caused all sorts of psychosomatic symptoms like chronic headache from chronic tension, right? And my body slowly learned now again that it was safe, that it was in control of the touch. And in doing so, the nervous system relaxed, the tension was released, my headaches got less, other symptoms that I had got less and less, and I started enjoying touch again. Wow. How, um, because something I noticed that seems to be a bit of a pattern for me in relationships is I'd have a fairly high sex drive, say at the beginning of a relationship. Mm -hmm. And then it can just, it's like someone's like switched a light switch off and I'm just don't, I'm just don't want sex. Or it just feels like, I don't know if it's through the chemicals, like you said, the attraction can shift or can it be trauma or is there like a combination of things? 
So there could be obviously different factors, but there's one thing you mentioned to me, obviously you're not my client, but, but if you were, you mentioned something interesting in the beginning because um, you said that you often quickly move in really quickly with people, right? So there's a high intensity in the beginning, but then moving in with somebody also means that suddenly there's no space anymore. And we have to remember that there's two different needs in a relation, romantic relationship that often exist on the opposite side of the spectrum. So there's the need for safety. And what is safety? Safety is consistency, familiarity, um, all that stuff, right? That is what makes us feel safe. And that is a very valid need we all have. However, that's not what is creates sex drive. And we also know that there's lots of research because that is on the other side. And actually why we often feel this strong sexual chemistry in the beginning is because there's a gap to bridge meaning there's actually a level of uncertainty, even a small level of anxiety, not too much, but there's actually a small level of, just like people like, you know, extreme sports, it's because a small level of anxiety actually create excitement, right? And desire, it's true, but they live on the opposite because actually the desire, the sexual chemistry has a certain element of unknowing, of, of newness, right? And safety is the complete opposite. That's not newness. That's that knowing, knowing everything about the other, how they react, depend, how dependent they are, you know, the, the patterns of how they respond. So therefore, if you jump too quickly and fully into the safety only, the sex drive, the desire will diminish. And that's what you do when you move in so quickly and there's no longer space and gap, right? Mm -hmm. So it totally makes sense. However, if you only live in a sexual desire, you can't really have intimacy because that's not safety for people to open up, to be vulnerable, right? Then it becomes a superficial, just, you know, having sex, basically, just a physical connection. There's nothing wrong in that, but then you won't get the safety element. That's also an important need. So what we need to start learning is, again, self-awareness. Notice, oh, when is sex drive going or sex drive is going? Maybe we need a bit of spaciousness. Maybe we need a bit of time apart. Where you go explore, I explore, and we can come back with a sense of newness and, oh, who is this person, right? Maybe we need to start looking at creating newness and exploring different fantasies. There's lots of things you can do in creating newness, right? And creating that space, even having time apart, actual time apart, is really important. Then there's something new to explore, to come back to, right? Instead of knowing everything. Or you might notice all oh, the anxiety is too big. And then you know that you need to move a bit more towards safety, right? So again, by noticing, is desire going, oh, then maybe we have a bit too much safety. We need to create a bit of space. Or am I feeling too anxious in this dynamic, right? But we have lots of good sex. Then maybe we need to go back to creating a bit more safety, right? Stability. Does that make sense? Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm thinking for someone like me, who's like a single person and haven't got no kids to worry about, but how would you recommend like for instance i guess couples going through this where they've maybe been married i don't know five ten years got a couple of kids and space doesn't like there is no time for space or my friend for instance she's dating someone and she was like we get an hour or two in the evening just to spend together but we're also knackered so it's like yes. what maybe a way to sort of create that dynamic if it's maybe not possible in a household for example so I think there's two elements to that. So I'll talk about how to create that dynamic in a moment. There's also an important space in accepting what the current reality is. So you're right. If you have small kids, there is hardly no time and you're completely worn out most of the time. So part of this is also having a realistic expectation because if we expect 
that we should constantly have this great sex life, then we feel constant disappointment. So there's also a place in accepting reality that for some years, that is not possible. And it doesn't mean something is wrong with the relationship, okay? Because we are all experiencing this when we become parents, right? It's normal. It's not about the other person. And that already takes away some of the irritation, disappointment, anger. Then there's also the second part is to just communicate the disappointment again and saying, oh, I feel really disappointed because I want to have this whatever sex life with you, but it's obviously not happening at the moment because we're exhausted. So even talking about it and acknowledge it, allow us to be together in that experience and not feeling alone with that, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that's what we can do about circumstances that might be hard to change, right? Because we can't change that we're going to be worn out when we have a small baby. That happens to pretty much everyone that has a small baby. So again, also just acceptance. This is part of the normal cycle of having a baby yeah your sex life isn't going to be the same for quite a while mm. so that's number one i think the second part is you can what can you do about it so you can still try to create elements of newness and you're right of course you might be tired but it doesn't have to be that difficult right it can be small little things it could be like you know one whoever is at work let's say if one person is home if the man is at home looking out for the kids the woman is out working um you know, it could be something simple as sending a little text and creating, because again, anticipation is part of what creates sexual desire. I actually written a book about this. What are the core elements behind sexual desire? And anticipation is also one of those because it creates a low level of anxiety, right? What's going to happen, which is what we call it, excitement, right? Very low levels of anxiety is actually what we categorize as excitement. So that could be saying, oh, you know, um, yeah, be home at this time, you know, meet me in this room and be dressed like this. And there will be something under the pillow. That's it. You don't say anything else, right? So you leave an element again of the unknown. And if you understand the elements of desire, you can start recreating those on purpose. They're organically there when we meet someone in the beginning, because there's so much uncertainty, you're not together all the time, right? And there's a lot of uncertainty already, right? So desire organically happens if you like this person. But when you live together all the time, when you have to raise a kid, all these elements are not there anymore. The distance are not there, the anticipation, the newness. So you have to think about how can I create small elements of something that's a new experience, something that create anticipation where they don't know. So we can start creating desire, right? It actually takes some effort. That's true to actually recreate that desire that happened organically initially. Well, um, just the words intimacy and vulnerability are coming up a lot um, when we speak and in general as well. But what is your definition of like intimacy and vulnerability in a relationship when it's not necessarily physical sex, if that makes sense? Yeah, that's a great question. And it probably brings us back to what you say, the difference between love and chemistry. So maybe we need to address that. Okay. because they are two very different things completely. I love my kids, but I don't want any kind of chemistry or that with my kids, but I still love them, right? Love can exist independent of chemistry completely. And also love is something very, very different because, and again, the kids analogy is good to describe this because love is not dependent on how I feel in the moment. And I'll describe why in a second. My kids sometimes are fucking annoying but I will still protect them. I will still make sure they're safe. I still come back to repair. I still care about their needs. All this is there all the time, independent on how I feel in the moment. 
Sometimes I'm excited. Sometimes we are laughing. Sometimes they piss me off. But it's independent on how I feel. And that's why it's consistent. Because how I feel is not consistent. And it isn't for any human being. It can even change within a minute, within the hour, right? How I feel is never going to be consistent. Love is consistent. Yeah? So it's also, love is also a choice of how I choose to show up again and again and again as a parent but also as a partner mm -hmm. yeah so it's important because we often get it wrong in relationship because we think we have chemistry we think oh that means this person is right for me right chemistry doesn't mean it's love chemistry also doesn't need mean that you have compatible needs and long-term goals right so chemistry alone is a horrible way to decide whether this is a good relationship for you are not long-term. And as you know, the chemistry eventually goes anyway. It feels good. We can enjoy it. There's nothing wrong with chemistry. I don't want to shame chemistry. It feels wonderful. And it's also really wonderful to have in a relationship, right? But I'm just saying we can't use that alone. And we tend to think it's love because we feel intense emotions. We confuse that with love. What actually we know now is a chemical addiction. So when you fall in love, as we call it, in the honeymoon phase, you have the same chemistry, the same parts of your brain is activated, the same chemicals are active as somebody who's addicted, okay? It is actually the same as brain. We see the same areas active as if we scan somebody who's addicted to alcohol or drugs, yeah? You're in a temporary state of addiction and you are going to make shit choices. <laughs> so do not make choices on your long-term future when you're in this state, enjoy it, enjoy it, have wonderful sex, enjoy it, it feels wonderful, but do not make a choice on your long-term future. Do not move in with this person when you're in this state because you cannot make good choices. Just that awareness alone is important to have, right? I mean, I'm not, it's not love. You're in a state of addiction and for all enjoy it. It can feel great to be high, right? And fuck, if you can be high for six months, why not enjoy it? But don't make long-term choices based on that, right? Just like you don't take drugs and make decisions on your financial investments and all this stuff. That's fucking stupid, right? We wouldn't do that. You don't get high and like, woohoo, let me make choices. But that's essentially what you're doing when you're feeling strong chemistry and start making choices on your long-term future. So this is why it's important to understand the chemical high, which is amazing, but it's that. So what is love? Because how can we see how is love different? As I said before, love is consistent, independent of that, right? The ups and downs. Love also, like I said, is consistency. And the difference is <clears throat> that in the, in the chemistry of addiction is a roller coaster. And this is also how you know the difference between a toxic relationship, which can feel like love, and what actual love is. Because in a toxic relationship, the roller coaster consists of high chemistry. So often there's something called love bombing. Oh, I love you. You're so beautiful. The sex is really intense, which woo, boosts the chemistry. You feel amazing. This person feels so good. And then this person creates anxiety. They might pull away. They start belittling you. They do different things that create anxiety. There's a crash, just like being on a drug. Yeah. You go high, you go low. Then, or maybe they've hit you, whatever they do, right? Create anxiety. Then they come back. I'm sorry, I love you. You're the most beautiful. Here's flowers. You're amazing. Dopamine. Woohoo! And what actually happens in your brain, we know, is that this person 
now becomes associated with being your drug. In your brain, they become the association that can give you the high, but they also become the fear that can take you low. And that creates a toxic dynamic where you can't break free from this person. And people are like, oh, the sex is so good. I know it's toxic. I don't know why I keep going back. And I love this person. And I always have to say to people, you don't love this person. You're addicted to this person. And that's the first part of recovery. You need to understand you're addicted to them, just like if they were a shot you were putting in your arm or you getting a lot of beers. There's no difference. It's the same chemistry. Yeah. You are now addicted to them. And, you know, this is important to see love is stable it's consistent it's somebody coming back to repair but it's not high intensity and then suddenly dips of anxiety right it's not it feels safe it's consistent tumor and responsiveness it's somebody being there for you in key moments of distress they show up for you in these key moments and are there to support you to help you pull through it's somebody who respect your boundaries and therefore, again, you feel safe. It's somebody who show a care for your needs, right? They can't always give you everything, but they show a genuine care and want to meet your needs. And this is consistent. It's not up and down. Up and down creates strong addictive chemistry, but it's not love. So how, um, I guess, there would be an attraction of some sort. Maybe you're attracted to their personality. Maybe you're attracted mm. to, there'll be like different types of attraction. Whereas a lot of us, you know, you see with these dating apps, people are literally just swiping based on exactly what someone looks like mm -hmm. to call it in. And it's like almost reaffirming to society that looks are first and everything else comes afterwards. And then, like you said, you get the real situation, the reality, and you're like, gosh, we might not be the same energy, we might not have the same values or things start to break apart after six months to a year or two yeah. years. Yeah. So I think there's a few things. Number one, we mentioned before, slow the fuck down. Making quick decisions never benefits you. Remember we said with boundaries, take a time out. With relationship, slow down. If this is a person you're going to spend your life with, what is a rush? The rush is that we feel anxious and those anxious attachment patterns makes us want to rush to get a perceived felt sense of safety, which obviously is artificial. And as we know, create the opposite, right? But that's why we rush. The fact is, if this is somebody we're going to spend a life with, what's a rush? Like mm -hmm. slow down. Yeah. Slow down. We make good decisions when we slow down and take time to notice. The second part of good decision-making is actually understanding how the brain and body works and integrate this organism. And really simple, there's three layers. There's thought, which is the logic. You know, the logic is, are they compatible? Do they have the same type goals? Like, I want to live by the beach, so this person want to live by the beach. Do they want kids? Yes and no. Like the logical deal breakers, right? So can I see, do we fit on a logical level, right? That's number one. Number two is emotional part, which is the part of the brain just below the logic. How do I feel? That's a chemistry part, right? How does it feel? Oh, it's exciting. That How am I feeling with this person? And is that consistent, right? Or am I feeling anxious with this person? But like how, because you can also feel really excited, but also feel anxious, right? I was with somebody who was very exciting, very good looking. I felt that chemistry, but they also made me feel anxious because they kept shaming me, right? And I felt an inconsistency in my emotional response which told me mm, this is a bit of a warning sign. 
So is there consistency in my, my emotional response? Is there consistency a match in a logic? And the last level of the neurological things to make decisions is sensation, the body. How does this person feel in my body? Yeah. And if it's a yes consistently on all three levels, then there's a high likelihood, no system is guaranteed, but there's a high likelihood you have a good match. If your body feels excited and safe when you're around this person, if you emotionally feel safe and excited with this person, if logically you match with what you want from life and how you want it, then, and this is why you need slowness to start noticing all three over time and see if there's consistent. Because a toxic person can easily make you feel excited for a week. They just shower you with affection. Very easy to manipulate the emotional system alone, even the logic. But over time, they can't. <clears throat> yeah, they can't. Something that's come up for me a lot, I'm doing one of my trauma courses, is about like narcissistic behavior. And is that something, because if you're seeing someone, say you're seeing them once a week and you're taking things slow, how do you like, and they'll show you the best parts, like you said, and you'll sort of get that. Is that something that a narcissist could attune to, to, to make it appear that they are? So great question. I actually have a program on this as well online that talks about all cluster B personality disorders, how to spot them, how to avoid them, how to not be targeted because they target very specific people. Um, and also how to, to, if you need to get rid of them and also how to heal if you've been with them. So I have a whole program online just on that. So to answer that question, yes. And there are very specific strategies you can do very early that are quite likely to expose this, right? So actually I would say three things when you're dealing with this is one is making, you know, if they don't, they have a need to feel special as well, right? That's very important. And they might set it aside for a while when they're doing all that love bombing, to try and suck you in. That's true. They can certainly do that manipulation. But one thing that they don't respond well to is boundaries. They do not respond well to boundaries and they find it very difficult to hide their emotions and their anger if anybody dare to set a boundary. Because somebody who have that dysfunction, they feel entitled, right? And even though they can try to hide it, they hate boundaries and they feel nobody has the right to set a boundary how dare anybody denying them their needs, right? So this is again where boundaries are so good because somebody with that kind of personality disorder would not be able to contain you consistently expressing your boundaries. It would come out in either rage, if it's more the overt kind, then there would be some kind of rage towards you um, or making you try and feel guilty about your boundaries, et cetera. Or it would start coming out more passive aggressive and trying to make you feel shame around your boundaries or, or spiteful, belittling comments, etc. But it would definitely, you know, start coming out. So, you know, that's a wonderful, very easy way. And again, slowness is the same. So the fact, yes, they can manipulate you for a while. But, you know, I, I collaborated with something called the, the High Conflict Institute in the US, who also specialized in this. And they've written a book on these personality disorders. And what's interesting is they say there's a 12-month mark. So they're only able to hide it for a maximum of between six to 12 months. Then the dysfunction will come out in full display, which is, again, why I say weight, slowness. Do not make any big decisions until you've been like live apart for at least six months, no matter how much you think you love each other. 
for at least six months. Normally when the toxicity come out, that was called the manipulation shift, is when they know you're fully committed. So they will normally love bomb you, do all this manipulation BS until there's a big commitment, which is why they tend to rush commitment too. A toxic person want commitment to happen really quickly. They will normally start talking about moving in together quickly, marriage, or how you're going to have kids together or go travel together. All these things of some kind of commitment talk happen really, really fast because they know the more you commit, the more you invested you are. The more they invested you are, the more they can let their mask down because the harder it is for you to leave, right? So they tend to want commitment fast. So they also tend to not like somebody who sets boundaries and push back against doing these quick, bigger commitments. Um, so that's also one way you can keep yourself safe. Mm. And there were some things when you said, and I was like, I feel like I've had some narcissistic qualities in there. Now I'm learning boundaries. Um, it was almost something like I'd asked my brother to do last year and he said no. And I felt really entitled that he should have said yes. And it was a good friend of mine at the time. He was a therapist and um, he was like, he's just putting in his boundaries. And it was like a, a big awakening for me that I was even crossing a boundary. So mm. is this something that we can shift? And, and yes, and that's also, so this is really important because this term is used so widely now and it's often used really wrong. So this is really important. People tend to, if somebody does something they don't like anymore, they say you are X, Y, and Z, right? Or if we make a mistake and violate somebody's boundaries, you might think, oh, I'm this. No, that doesn't mean you are that at all. This is a really severe diagnosis, okay? That means that this, and we all, by the way, have some narcissism and some traits of narcissism is even healthy. Because let's look at even starting a business. If you don't have some kind of belief in yourself, oh, I'm good enough, I can do it. No, I'm serious. It actually requires some small narcissistic tendencies to be successful. So in that way, it's actually healthy because it's what makes us think, oh, I'm good enough, I can do this. Maybe others can't, but I can. But that's a healthy sense of narcissism, right? So it lives on a spectrum like anything does, right? And being down here with small narcissistic traits is not necessarily toxic or dangerous in any way or form. It's when it goes up to this side of the spectrum. It's when we consistently, and it's much more extreme as well. When you see it in them, it's much more extreme. The way they violate people, their sense of entitlement. This is a person who will start screaming at someone because they don't get served before the people. It's much more extreme, right? It doesn't mean because you feel a little bit irritated, somebody doesn't give me your need, doesn't mean you are you fit that class. And also means... Just because you fit one doesn't mean you are that, right? You have to fit five of these classifications. You have to fit them on a consistent basis and you have to fit them on the more extreme side of the spectrum to have this diagnosis. So it doesn't mean because you've done some of these things or recognize some that you are that. And I think that's important to say. And we have to be careful not to label everyone who maybe violate a boundary and say, oh, that means you are a narcissist. No, it doesn't. Even well-intended people violate boundaries unintentionally at times it doesn't mean they're evil it just means they're human right i'm talking about people who consistently do it who gets really toxic and try to belittle you or blame you or shame you consistently or get outright rage attacks and get really hostile or have extreme reactions where they suddenly leave and won't talk to you for days right and give you silent treatment this kind of extreme behavior on a consistent basis that's toxic that's a toxic response 
But somebody who accidentally violates a boundary, that doesn't mean they're a toxic person. That's interesting. And something now you've just explained that it's made me reflect on a relationship that was in my life um, with a female friend, actually. And sitting with that, that was quite a narcissistic behavior. Um, and I felt a lot of the times I was gaslit and I'd end up apologizing for expressing how I felt and having it twisted around. Is that, is that a normal? And that's come back to healthy relating because I talked about this a little bit, but in healthy relating, in authentic relating and in safe relating, which is at the core of being able to experience love, is this very concept of acknowledging each other. And acknowledging is not the same as agreeing. People be like, oh, but I think something else. That's totally fine. And you're allowed. Of course, your experience are different. We're two different people. We have different needs, different backgrounds. We perceive the world different. Of course, we see things different. We see everything different. And that's fine. But in a healthy dynamic, somebody would acknowledge your experience. They wouldn't try to make you feel wrong. Somebody trying to make you feel wrong, that's a toxic behavior. And that's the difference. If you and me disagree, Amy, which we probably would if we had spent more time together, and you might say something that I don't agree with, here's how I would respond. I would say, Amy, I really hear that this is your experience and this is what you need and it's very valid. Here's my experience. Yeah? This is a healthy way of relating. I acknowledge that your experience is real and I'm saying this is my experience so we can have different experiences and that's okay too, right? When it becomes toxic is when you don't acknowledge that the other person and you try to basically make sure that only your reality is real. Yeah. yeah? Does that make yeah. sense? It really, like, there was some stuff um, I've been working through with my, my brother again and I feel like he would ask me a question and I'd give my answer and then because his answer was, or his opinion was different, he would then totally condemn and tell me why my response or what I was doing was bad for me or wrong for me. And, it, and I can see it's coming from a pace of fear because he wants the best for me. Well, all toxic behavior is. All toxic behavior come from people from a place I can of appreciate fear. now when he was explaining it, where he's learned that behavior pattern from and where that programming has come yes. from. So you just, yeah, you, again, it's just, it's just answered a few. And, and you can explain, you can also express your boundary and explain that to him because you can even say, wait hold on for a moment you can say it's not okay for me that you start shaming me because i have a different opinion it's totally okay that you have a different opinion but it's not and if you continue to shame me i'm gonna hang up on this conversation because <laughs> my as, this is what i would say if people do this to me because my experience is real and your experience is, is equally real because it's all just subjective experience right everything is subjective and you're allowed to have yours it's totally valid but mine is too and i won't have you have shame my experience okay it would be great if you can acknowledge it but if you can't then leave it there don't start shaming it and if you do then i'm gonna end this conversation like that's a clear boundary for me right that's a way of saying this is and also this would you talk a lot about self-worth and self-love this is an act of self-love because this is telling yourself as well as the other, this is how I want to relate. This is how I will be treated. And I will only relate to others within the framework of how I know it's okay for me to be treated. And it's not okay for me when somebody tries to shame me about my reality and my experience. 
totally okay that they disagree, but it's not okay that they try to make me feel wrong or about change, my experience. Or change our opinion. Yes. Whatever the reason is, like they're fearful, I get that. It's still, I still don't tolerate the behavior. I have understanding for the behavior. I don't tolerate the behavior. That's great. And to be fair, like, I did communicate. I've put my boundaries in when this did come up again. Beautiful. Beautiful. And um, he really sat with it. And then funnily enough, what was interesting is then when I got upset and cried, he was like, what, why are you crying? So it's like he then couldn't handle seeing the vulnerability and the emotion behind it. And I was like, well, this is, I just felt frustrated. And now that frustration has diminished. Sadness yeah. has come through, perhaps yeah. from when I wasn't able to be heard when I was a child. So it was, it was really uncomfortable, but again, it's a that's beautiful. That is such a beautiful way of relating really beautiful that you had the courage to step into that. That's really, really beautiful. And also in that act, you're teaching people how to love you in setting boundaries and expressing your needs. You're teaching people how they can love you, right? Cause they might not know. And you're also getting rid of the people who can't love you who can't relate to you from that place. And that's true. Some people won't. And when we talk about vulnerability, because what you did was an act of vulnerability of saying, I actually feel sad. It can feel very raw, right? And vulnerability is essential for love and intimacy. However, it doesn't mean we should do it with everyone because some people are not safe to be vulnerable with. So people often say, how do I know? I say, you. there's a few indicators. One, I notice if people tend to shame and talk bad about other people, if they're very judgmental, if they tend to shame me or other people, then they're not safe to be vulnerable with. Mm -hmm. So I don't share very vulnerable with those people, right? Unless they do the work and sort themselves out, I wouldn't share with them in a vulnerable way because they're not safe to open up to. Or I start also sharing smaller vulnerabilities when I get to know people. I don't show my most core wounds. That wouldn't be wise. You know, trust has to be earned over time by somebody showing consistently that they are not judgmental and that they can hear and acknowledge what I'm expressing, right? So I share maybe a small vulnerability and see how does this person respond, right? A small boundary, how do they respond? If they consistently respond in a good way, then I share more and more. And over time, I open up. And that's also important to understand because there's a key difference, even though they look the same, there's a really important difference between vulnerability, which create connection and emotional dumping, which is very toxic. They look the same initially, but here's the difference. If vulnerability is a slow opening and disclosure as trust is organically built over time. Emotionally dumping is trying to offload all your distress for somebody else to hold. And toxic people tend to do emotional dumping. They tend to very quickly tell you about all the traumas they had and throw it all on you, right? Straight away. It's like, here you go. You hold this for me. Um, or they even make it up to get sympathy, right? When a healthy, balanced way of relating, that doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. There's a slow opening and organic disclosure as trust is built over time. Yeah, it's something I was aware that I'd done in the past, like trauma dumping. I think it would come up more because I used to be like a weed smoker. So yes. I'd smoke a bit of weed and then you'd have these deep conversations. And, but then it was also interesting because you'd also had maybe some deep conversations. But okay. it's just sometimes it's almost asking, I find now, like, do you have space for me to talk about this? Or yes. I've got something on my mind. And like I did that yesterday with my friend and I sent this really long voice note. And then I was like, 
oh gosh, she might not have the space, even though we're like, yes. she's my ride or die, this girl. But I deleted it. And she's like, why have you deleted that message? And I was like, because I didn't actually ask you if you had the space. And she was like, yeah, give me 10 minutes, I'll call you. Yes. So it was, you know, again, I was like, oh God. And when you get this awareness, it's like, can I speak this? Can mm -hmm. I not? And you start to regulate yourself and think, you know, do I need to co-regulate with a friend or a family member? And I feel like a lot of that frustration, a lot of us want to be able to co-regulate with family members because we're we've got this fantasy of what a family bond should be like. Yeah. And that's something I'm working on with my dad, for example. And I'll go to tell him something and he'll talk over you or he will like, oh, I don't want to see you cry. And it's like, okay, well, this is part of who I am now. And if you want to be in my company and we are going to have these deeper conversations, it's gonna unwrap it but do we want to have a deep conversation right now or do we want to keep it light and airy so it's starting to feel into and that this is beautiful what you're saying because that's something we never talk about in relationship which is consent right what you're saying is check in and this is when we talk about consent i say there's three different stages there's the i endure there's the i am willing to and there's I want to, yeah? And I think what I try to seek for in relationship is two people meeting in a place where they both feel that I want to, mm -hmm. yeah? That's where beautiful relating can happen. Of course, there are times we have to do that I'm willing. So I don't always wanna get up in the night for my kids, <laughs> but I'm willing to do it, right? So there are times, but most of the time, I try to relate, especially with an adult dynamic where I want to. That's where connection happened. That's where we both feel nurtured. Because I'm a willing to can quickly turn to resentment, right? I don't really want this, but I'm willing to do it. And you end up doing what you call the people pleaser. Mm -hmm. The people pleaser is stuck in, I endure and I'm willing to most of the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's a, and you know, I do this with some of my friends, especially if they have trauma, even before I have a hug, I will say, do you want the hug? And maybe they say yes, because that's like the default response. I'll say, wait, let's slow down. Just check in. Are you enduring? Meaning, are you doing this just because you feel you have to? Are you willing to because you know that I want to have a hug, so you're doing it for my sake? Or do you actually want a hug? Mm -hmm. And I slow it down so they can, this is what I'm teaching my daughter too, right? And to check in with consent, and this is what we should be doing, or I don't like the word should, let me take that back. This is what would be beneficial to be doing because we don't have to do anything. This is what would be beneficial to be doing because then you're right. We don't push something onto another person. And we also know that when we meet, it's actually a consensual meeting. And even the same with advice, we're so cool at throwing our advice onto other people. Or if they tell us about their problem, I'll be like, oh, this is what you should do. Maybe realize why you're giving advice because often we do it to soothe ourselves because we feel distressed about what, the, and we feel, oh, if I can just fix it, I don't have to feel this distress, right? Why are you giving advice? you know, and maybe seek consent first and say, you know, I really feel the impulse to want to give you advice. Is that actually what you need right now? Mm -hmm. And the other person can then notice, right? And say, no, I just actually need to be acknowledged. And you realize, oh, that was my need yeah, yeah to give advice. That's been something for me that's been um, quite heavy is one thing I'm very curious about people. So I love to learn about people. And then I start asking questions and I'm like, oh gosh, do you even want to talk about this right yes. now? Like yeah. that's totally like, am I, and then we'll open that, bar like that 
boundary if they do or they don't and then I'll before I would then be spouting out which I recognized was a pattern from my dad for example because you want to fix the solution like give them a solution you, you might even see it in black and white but I'm like what what would you like right now do you want to hug do you want to listen to some music do you want to go for a walk do you need to be or like so it's you know do you want my advice do you, because normally when people do come to me it's like aim can you give me because I'm very to the point so it's recognizing when people do want that and when they just want to to be listened to or a hug yes that's right and also trusting in in their capacity as an adult because there's something about caretaking where we think we are helping people but we are actually doing the opposite because what we are also doing is keeping them reinforced and stuck in a state of helplessness so it's actually reinforcing that they're helpless and that they can't resolve things themselves and therefore we keep doing it for them so actually often there can be a lot more help in trying to help people be empowered in how they can be with their own discomfort. For your dad, maybe he feels uncomfortable about your crying, but instead of you trying to soothe him, saying, dad, I hear that that's quite difficult for you to watch me cry, but also you know, saying to him, but that's for you to deal with your discomfort around me crying. That's not for me to hold, right? And there's something very powerful in doing that for both of you because it's saying I own my experience, which is that I have a need to cry, but also letting him own his experience, which is that he find that difficult for whatever reason mm -hmm. and let him deal with that, right? What's interesting as well is a question from that, but I notice I can be overly giving and it's something I'm sort of, I love to, I do love to give and I'm, I feel like now I'm learning to give from the heart rather than the need just to give. But if a partner or a person is aware that you are overly giving and they are, you are enabling them, I guess, to an extent, um, is that a narcissistic tendency or is that them just enjoying? So I think somebody who tend to be overly giving tend to also be more likely to be targeted by somebody with that personality disorder because somebody who feel entitled, they naturally avoid people who have strong boundaries because those are not people that will attend to their every need long term and they tend to seek out they actually test for this specifically whether you will accommodate their needs and whether you're willing to overstep your own boundaries to do so those are the people like i interviewed these personality disorders people who diagnosed and they will say that they have a systematic way of testing if people basically overlook their own needs and boundaries to accommodate theirs and those are the people they will target because somebody who thinks it's all about them only about them. Who do they want? They want somebody who compromise themselves to feed them, right? So it makes you much more likely yes, to be a target of these people, which again is why solid boundaries and being clear and expressive in your needs are important. Because if you are, these people just stay away from you and you don't have to worry about them mm -hmm. because they don't even target you because you are a bad target. You are a shit supply, which is great. You want to be a shit supply, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're not a petrol station. And what they want is not human relation. They want to come fill up their tank, go out, do whatever they want and come back to you to fill up their tank again. They want a petrol station. So don't be a petrol station. Yeah, be sure that you're empty when they come to fill up and say, sorry, there's no more petrol here. Our prices has gone up significantly. Inflation is up 1000%. So, I feel like that, that comes down to a lot of like self-awareness, self-worth. And yes. then you're like, you know, fuck this. I've, I've had enough of being, a, I yes. love that analogy. I've had enough of being a petrol station. Yes. And my um, needs matter too. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Being a petrol station. Something I notice is when I then express a need, it would 
normally get overlooked. So yes, like, of course. Then validating that I am not worthy of being heard or seen. Yes, and seeing this consistently should be a warning sign to you, because somebody who actually genuinely care about you would not respond in that way. If you express the need, I would definitely, as a minimum, I would acknowledge it. This is a healthy way, but as a minimum, I would acknowledge it, even if I can't give it to you, right? Because it might be that you want to go, whatever, to sex parties, and maybe I'm like, oh, that doesn't feel good. But I would still acknowledge your need. I would still say, I told you, you know, what is it you like about this? And then I would acknowledge that and say, oh, I get that. That can be really exciting, and mm. I get that. I, but then I would say, but that would cross my boundary because that would make me feel unsafe, right? But then... I would also say to you, and I understand this might be disappointing. Maybe we can sit in this disappointing together. Can you see how this is a healthy way of relating? Yeah, because you're being heard, you're being acknowledged, even if it's a need I'm not able to give you, right? I acknowledge your need as being real, as being beautiful, but somebody who does the opposite, like you said, who try and shame you or disacknowledge or get rid of it, and again, if that happened consistently, that's again, it's like, it doesn't mean that they have a personality disorder, but it means they can't relate in a way that will be nurturing for you long-term. Mm. No, it's very, 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 very insightful. So I really, and you know, what? I'm very lucky that I've had partners as well that have, have fulfilled every need that I've wanted as well. So I know that it is possible. And I guess for a lot of people that aren't aware of that love or of that connection that they're settling i guess potentially for less because they don't know that there is a possibility or they haven't experienced it for example if you've grown in one soil your whole life how would you know how it is to be planted in a different soil so what's some sort of tips for someone that's been grown in that soil to start to recognize their worth and say you know what i've got to put some boundaries in so i think there's a few different so i think you know a lot of it is i work with with people when i work with them one-to-one so that's giving them all these tools to start being able to do this and get different experiences in a safe environment, right? Where it's safe to play around. I think the second part of this is also the fact that we have to understand these are relational wounds. So they were created in relation to another. Most of our wounds are relational, right? They were socially created and they're also socially healed. So while we can obviously do a lot and we definitely can, it's also about being very mindful of who we choose to be around because the people we choose to be around is the soil that we grow in. So when I keep referring to the soil, like as a, as a piece of earth, the people you're around is essentially your soil. So some way you say, how can we start seeing how this will grow in a different soil? Well, sometimes we have to for a while, at least maybe we want to come back to some of these people later to repair, to heal. But for a while, we might have to negate and, get away from that soil completely. Yeah, and that's what I did. I got away from all my old contacts, even my family for a number of years. And I only related to people that were securely attached, to people that had a great respect and encouragement for my boundaries, for people that were responsive to my needs, all this stuff. And from having consistent exposure to that being safe, I started rewiring my nervous system, my attachment became different. And from that place, I could go back and try and repair some of the attachments. And some of them, of course, I just let go of from people that weren't interested. But the ones that were interested in repairing and relating in a new way to me, I was willing to be there and embrace and, and obviously repair those. But sometimes we simply have to put ourselves in a completely new soil. 
Here's a question as well, because I, I know that we can develop into secure attachment styles. Can a person that is secure attachment be pushed into anxious or? Oh, yes, of course, absolutely we can. So none of them are fixed. While their set point is more secure and will tend to be, it will be easier for them to come back to a set point because they have a neurological experience of that already, right? Like it's easier to self-love if you had an experience of what love is, right? If you only have ever been beaten or abused in your childhood, saying to somebody, oh, just self-love is not helpful because no. their own experience is abuse as self-love. You have to first give them an experience of what love is, right? Before they can give it to themselves. So, so um, yes, they can be pulled out of that. Absolutely. But that comes back to knowing your set point, right? Because if I know my set point, how, what that is, I can notice, oh, why am I starting to feel really anxious with this person? And then I know there's something wrong with the dynamic with this specific person. And it's not my triggers because I know this is not how I feel when I'm on my own. It's not how I feel when I'm with my friends. Then I know it has something to do with this person specifically. That's yeah. Amazing. I'm very conscious of the times so we've been talking. Yeah, me too. I just noticed that I'm so, and I need to drink. So you're right. I think yes. it's time to wind, up, wind it up. So I'm going to stop the recording. I'm going to put all of Thomas's details below. Like, love to do another episode of you because this has just been i could talk for hours so um, much so much but, um thank you so much i'm going to stop the recording now i thought god did i even press record could you imagine <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>